Well, I want to look at the breaking of bread as it is recorded really here in, in John 13. But I, I'd like to just start by pointing out that I think all the Lord's efforts with the, the Twelve to sort of drive them towards spiritual maturity during the course of his ministry, they did kind of work out in the end. Uh, and even before his death, there, there was some progress. Book of John, you can split up uh, into sort of three uh, sections. There's the prologue in John 1, and then the book of signs, where the seven miracles are gone through from John 1:19 to end of chapter 12. And now beginning here in chapter 13, there is what could be called the book of glory. Now, earlier in John, the disciples always refer to the Lord Jesus as rabbi or teacher. But from now on, they always call him Lord. And I think that that is a sign of spiritual maturity. And when you look at the, the titles that Paul and Peter and others use about the Lord Jesus, you can see a kind of progress if you put their letters chronologically and go through them chronologically. And I think that is how it is also in our own lives, that we come to perceive his greatness over time, his lordship over time. Now he told the parable about the need to take the lowest seat at the feast and not to assume that we are first. And I think that Peter at least had learned that lesson because in this incident of the foot washing that we just read there beginning of chapter 13, I think you can reason that Peter was actually last because he'd uh, washed the disciples' feet and then verse 6 he comes to Simon Peter and Simon says no. And Jesus pleads with him that, yes, you really have got to have this, or else you have no part with me. And he says in verse 10, um, that you are clean, but not all. It, it implies that, well, I have actually washed already all of you, so now you're cleansed. Although, ultimately, ultimate cleansing, not all of you, because, of course, Judas turned away. And because Judas was the one sitting next to Jesus, you could imply or infer from that that in fact Judas had taken the highest seat at this, this feast. So then, bit by bit, it seems that they did learn, very slowly, same, same with us. Now, in the context of this breaking of bread, the Lord says in verse 10, He who has bathed does not need to wash again except for his feet. And the allusion, I think, is to Numbers 19, verse 19, where the Levite was to take a kind of a plunge bath in order to be clean for, for service. And also, I think, Exodus 30, verse 21, where the priests firstly wash their bodies and then their hands and feet. And I, I think the allusion must be to baptism, that he's saying, you have washed, you have taken the plunge bath, but you've still got to... Uh, take attention to your to your walk, to your the way of your feet, and to still at times cleanse your your way uh, of, of your feet. If that's correct, we would have here, as I see it, about the only reference which I can discern to the fact that the disciples were in fact baptized. That for some reason is not recorded, uh, but obviously they I assume they had been baptized. Um, this could be an allusion to that, but we can discuss that, that afterwards maybe. So then, he's saying that baptism is a, is a one-time event. You don't need to keep on being, being re-baptized once you've been properly baptized, but you do need to wash your feet. 
and he's sort of saying that this is in preparation for keeping this last supper. And so I think that the breaking of bread, although it is primarily focusing us upon the memory of the Lord Jesus, I think that it does require of us, of course, a self-examination that flows quite naturally, and a looking at the state of our feet. And, of course, they didn't want the Lord Jesus to wash their feet. And he says, 13 and 14 of chapter 13, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I think they were calling him Lord and Master, but would not wash one another's feet. And here is a big problem, that we can accept theoretically the Lordship of Jesus. And I've pointed out that from chapter 13, verse 1 onwards, they called Jesus Lord, whereas previously they just saw him as their rabbi, their teacher. And yet, if Jesus is really Lord, we are to wash each other's feet. Now, if I were to say to you, do you accept that Jesus is not just Jesus, but Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ? I believe you'd all say, sure, absolutely, he's not just Jesus, he is the Lord Jesus, he is Lord and Master. Okay, that is not painless to accept that. That's not just uh, ticking a box. That requires that we therefore take on this business of putting ourselves as servant of all. Now, to show the bottom of one's foot to someone in the Near East was a mark, and it still is a mark, of, of contempt. And that's why you, you might have uh, seen on the media uh, in the Middle East to this day, if you want to insult someone, you, you take off your sandal, expose your foot to them, and maybe throw your sandal at them. And it's very important how you sit. You typically sit on the ground, or, or on a cushion, but it's absolutely crucial that you do not show your bare foot to somebody. I can remember very distinctly uh, a situation with uh, John Stibbs and Liz Ammons and myself uh, in Pakistan where we were seated uh, on cushions, sitting down on the floor on, on cushions, and there was this distinct unease in the audience, and I perceived that we were doing something wrong, and that's what we were doing wrong. Um, I had absent-mindedly uh, taken my, my sandal off because, I don't know, it was hot or something. I don't know why I did it. And there was a distinct anger and, and dis-ease until that was pointed out to me. So then, to wash the feet of another is to say that I put myself absolutely on the lowest level. And this is the whole message of Jesus, that as I have done, because I am your Lord, you are to do this. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, in his self-humiliation, in his time of dying. Hosea 11.7 laments that Israel called them to the Most High, but none at all would exalt him. They called him the Most High, as we can call Jesus Lord and Master. But to really exalt Jesus is to be a servant of all, and we do not want to do that. And this was, of course, the, the huge uh, paradox in the teaching of Jesus, that he as their master washed their feet. And yet, although they were so far away from him in one sense, they were so far behind him, yet he was so patient with them. And I think you, you see that um, in verse 21, 
John 13:21, he says, uh, well, it says there that Jesus was troubled in spirit. And the spirit is uh, is the heart. In John 12:27, now is my soul or my heart troubled. And yet he says in John 14, as we've also read verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. And again in 27 of chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. But the heart of Jesus had been troubled. Now that is not him saying, you know, be as I say but not as I am, do as I say but not as I do. There is more to it than that. The point is that in the troubling of his soul, as uh, Isaiah 53 makes quite eloquently clear, we find our peace. It's as if this is purposefully inserted here by John, this apparent contradiction between the soul and heart of Jesus being troubled, as is emphasized uh, here in verse 21 of chapter 13 and in 12:27, now is my soul and my heart troubled, and then the double emphasis that your heart should not be troubled. Although we keep saying that the cross of Jesus is to be our inspiration and we also are to carry his cross, that, that is always true. It is also true to say that he carried it for us to some extent, in some sense. And that through his chastising we have found peace. Now, in verse 23, there was leaning on Jesus chest one of the disciples one of his disciples whom Jesus loved that's not John saying well I was the one who Jesus loved he loved me more than anyone else he's not saying that that would be totally primitive but I think he's saying in his gospel and although it's inspired this is really a transcript of the gospel that John went around preaching this is how I suggest the gospel records came into existence that as the years went by after the ascension of the Lord Matthew, Mark, Luke and John went around preaching their uh, version of the, these events and eventually the whole thing was, uh, in, was put down in words and in some inspired mechanism. We have the, the Gospels that we now have. So as John went around preaching, this is what he said. I was really loved by Jesus. He's not saying I was loved more than the others. He's just commenting. Jesus loves me. And, you know... We, we can sort of uh, mock the simplicity of that, but that is really part of our witness. Have you ever said that to anybody in your witness and you're talking about the gospel? That you know what? I really feel that Jesus loves me. It's so simple. It's almost seen as uh, facile, but that is the bottom line that He has loved me. Now, He describes Himself as reclining on the chest of Jesus. The AV says that the bosom. And yet, in John 1.18, John has also recorded, under inspiration, but I think he, he's making consciously the connection, that Jesus is now resting in the Father's chest. And yet he says, I rested on Jesus' chest. What he's saying is that he shared, to some extent, the same kind of intimate relationship with Jesus as Jesus now has with the Father. And that is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. So John is holding himself up, his own relationship with the Lord Jesus, as an example of that which is possible for each of us. That the same kind of relationship between the Son of God and his Father is possible between us right now 
and and Jesus. So then, the breaking of bread, as it was then and as it is now, is really the sign of the Lord's special love for us. Now, Jesus did not want Judas to to betray him. That's quite clear. He he did not want this to happen. And in verse 27, we read that Jesus gave what is called the sop to Judas. Now, what was the, the sop? Well, this was a special sign of love and affection that the host, and the host in this sense of the feast was Jesus, that he took a special piece of bread called the sop and dipped it in the wine and gave it to the special favourite. And he did that to Judas. And there is a purposeful juxtaposition of ideas that after he'd done this, verse 27, Satan entered into Judas. And then Jesus kind of shrugs and says, look, just do it quickly. It's as if having received that special sign of Jesus' special love for him, he went out and did the the unthinkable and ultimately the unforgivable that he, without repentance, without true repentance, betrayed Jesus. Now, this, I think, is true to our experience, that insofar as we perceive the special love of Jesus for you and me, we can then just turn around and act in the most awful way. It's as if coming before the cross of Jesus and perceiving his special love for us and seeing it, as it were, symbolized and memorialized in this bread and wine, we can then turn around and act very badly worse than we perhaps otherwise would have done. And that's because I submit that coming before the cross of Jesus brings us to a T-junction, a T-intersection. That's why Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about self-examination at the breaking of bread. We are brought before Jesus and we are to focus of course on thinking about him but quite naturally it flows out of that it inevitably flows out of that that we look at ourselves because we also are confronted with the special love of Jesus for us and so we have a choice to repent as Judas could have done or to walk out into the night and do the unthinkable and sadly that is what happens but the point is we are at a T-junction and this is the great value I think of the whole breaking of bread service that we are brought to this this T-junction now why you know, it's the old uh, it's the old question why did Jesus act to Judas in the way that he did because we're we're told um, there in verse uh, 21, truly, truly, I tell you that one of you shall betray me. Um, verse 18, I don't speak of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Jesus, according to this here, and verse 11 is crystal clear he knew who should betray him Jesus knew about Judas I mean 
he was an intellectual without compare and he was highly perceptive and highly sensitive and all the times that Jesus says um, that you know, he, he perceived their thoughts I don't think it was so much because of a flash of Holy Spirit in, inspiration but rather that he um, simply perceived because he was so sensitive he perceived he would have perceived that Judas was stealing bits and pieces of money out of the bag he knew what was going on and yet why then the lament that this was my own familiar friend in whom I trusted because you see verse 18 that the scripture may be fulfilled he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me I mean Psalm 41 verse 9 and he's quoting is very clear he's talking about the shock and the pain and the surprise of realizing that Judas his own familiar friend in whom I trusted in whom I believed had done this to him now what are we to make of this he knew on, on one side you can drop all the evidence that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him he knew Judas personally was the one who was going to do it and that is un undeniable and yet on the other hand, you've got, as it were, in another column, a whole load of other scriptures, like my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. How can you trust someone? How can you be friends with someone who you know from the beginning is going to betray you? Why? And what's the resolution of this? Well, my suggestion is this, that there is an element, a feature of human nature, and Jesus was in that sense human, of knowing something full well and yet acting the other way out of love classic example I think is Samson with Delilah you read that record and I hate reading it because you think oh Samson you know don't you what she's going to do you're getting nearer and nearer to telling her the truth and she's going to betray you you know that stop why are you doing this and he did it because he loved her oh, as simple as that more humanly, I see, or I have seen several times, some of some very fine women, sisters in Christ, marrying alcoholic men. And, you know, you sort of don't want to be negative about it, but you, you, you try to counsel them and say, look, um, don't you see what's going to happen? The uh, problems with money, the problems with beating you up, the problems with this, that and the other. Don't you see it? And it's not that love is blind. Love is not blind. That's a silly, silly thing to say. Love is not blind. Love simply looks at the realities another way. And all those women would say, yes, yes, they said, yes, I, I know. I know, I know, I know. But I love him. And there was always the hope that he will change. Now, this is what I mean, that there is we are capable of holding exact knowledge about something on one hand and yet acting because of love basically uh, as if that is not true in reality and I think that the Lord Jesus because he was human had that element to him and I would go even further and say that there's nothing wrong with that feature of humanity but I would say that we're made in the image of God and you know what I think it's even possible that God has that because otherwise all the language that there is in the Bible of God's shock, surprise, disappointment for example, surely they will respect my son in the parable and then what, they kill him like they did the other prophets oh no, 
you think, well, how can that really be true of God? The God who has ultimate foreknowledge, how can he then talk of surprise, shock, joy at human behaviour, disappointment and pain at human failure? From where has that language got any real meaning, if he knew it all beforehand? Well, he does know it all beforehand in that sense. Um, he is not uh, ignorant or limited in that sense in knowledge. But love and hopefulness, which he also has, means that that knowledge is uh, somehow dealt with in a different way. And I think that Jesus' attitude to Judas is maybe the parade example of all this. So then, that leads on to the fact that Jesus looks upon the disciples at this time, at this breaking of bread as he's facing his death, in a very positive way. He imputes knowledge and faith to them, which they didn't really have. Look at chapter 14, verse 4. He says, where, I'm go- where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says, but we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way there? Well, Jesus counted them as if they did. In verse 20, at that day you shall know in the future. And yet he counted them as if even then you know. He doesn't say in verse 4, whither I go you will know, and the way you will know. He says you do know, that's why Thomas says, but we don't. And then he says in verse 20, in that day you will know. So he counts them as more uh, perceptive and understanding than they really were. He says in verse 17, about the spirit of truth the world cannot receive the Jewish world as the world often means in John's gospel because it doesn't understand or know him but you know him well they didn't in that sense then in verse 9 of chapter 14 he's more realistic he said "Um, have I been so long with you and have you not known me Philip you have not known me and yet And in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father. And yet, he's said in verse 4, that where I go you know, and the way you know. Verse 20, but in that day you shall know. In John 17, Jesus three times tells God in prayer that his men, his disciples, did know him and his word. Just a... Bear in mind what we just read in chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known me, like you don't. Verse 7, do you still not know me, Philip? Yet he says in in 17, uh, in prayer to his father, verse 7, they have known, verse 8, they have known surely that I came out from you. Uh, Verse 25 of uh, John 17, the world has not known you, But I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And yet they didn't. Now, the Lord Jesus then was very positive about his disciples when he was in prayer to his Father. This is imputed righteousness. And of course, he was about to die on the cross, and he knew that they would all forsake him. That same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is interceding for us as he did in John 17 for the disciples 
in this high priestly prayer mediating for us as if we are perfect as if we are him because his love makes us as it were part of him he imputes himself to us and this is so difficult to believe but it is true and how he intercedes for the disciples and how he thinks about them and perceives them now at this time is a real comfort to us as we sit here likewise breaking bread just as as they did so at the end of chapter 13 there is this question where are you going and we know where he was going he was going to the cross Peter says why cannot I follow you now verse 36 Lord where are you going and the answer is he was going to the cross and so when he says in chapter 14 verses 2 and 3 in my father's house is many dwelling places uh, and I go to prepare a place for you he wasn't talking about going to heaven he's talking about going to the cross verse 3 and if I go and prepare a place for you this is on the cross I will come again and receive you to live with me that where I am there you may be also now this is an allusion to a custom that there was in Palestinian tradition that there was the wedding there was the, the marriage and yet the wife came to live with the new husband a certain period later whilst he prepared the place for her now we can read these words and not perceive that reference but I believe it was very clearly understood uh, by those who first heard it where are you going? well the answer to that is I'm going to the cross I'm being taken away from you the bridegroom shall be taken away Mark 2 verse 20 same word used in the Septuagint in Isaiah 53 verse 8 that Jesus was taken away in his death on the cross so then the the groom the husband was taken away from the wife right after the, uh, the wedding whilst he prepared the place for her and then she came and he received her unto himself so that where he is there she might be also these are definitely these words in verse 3 are definitely alluding to that there's a huge implication here a wonderful implication that when Jesus died on the cross that was as it were in all the pain and the tears and the blood and the awfulness of the whole thing and the darkness and the loneliness that was in fact his wedding to us and he went away to prepare a place in God's eternal house where we shall live forever with him and he has come again in resurrection and he will in a physical sense you know, John is writing here in a, in a very spiritual perspective that he will come again we are his and his death on the cross which we uh, celebrate in, in this cup which is the cup of the covenant this is the promise the confirmation of his oaths to us now looking at it from that point of view seriously beholding him there and understanding that this cup represents the confirmation beyond any strife or argument that his promise that he loves us and has gone to prepare a place for us in God's kingdom that that is so and that is true 
really, that we should simply be moved to a profound faithfulness and a profound eager waiting for him to come again so that he will, as he promised, take us under himself. It's only a husband who, who married, went away to prepare the, 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 the house for the new bride and then uh, cleared off. I mean, Jesus is not like that. He has shown that he is serious, ultimately serious, in his connection with us and his relationship with us. And he will come again to take us to be with him in the Father's house.